right, well, good morning, church. So good to see each of you this morning. Hey, today we are starting our fall sermon series. So we're going to be looking at this sermon series called Dwell, as you can see there on the screen. What we're doing is we're looking at how God desires to dwell with his people. And we're going to look at what that looked like in the Old Testament, but also what it means for us today. And we're going to do all of that by studying through the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right, so I hope you're ready. I'm excited. It's going to be a great study over these next few months. So before we dive in, let's pray and let's ask Jesus to help us, to bless us as we study his word. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you that it is only by your blood that can wash away our sin, that we can have a relationship with you forever. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to see just that, exactly that, the truth and the power of your gospel in the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Lord, we want to learn the whole word of God. We want to know what the Bible says and what the Bible means. But Lord, we cannot do that on our own. We cannot do that in our own strength or wisdom. We need your Holy Spirit. So Lord God, would your Spirit speak to us through your word and to our hearts today. Jesus, teach us. Teach us your truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is probably one of the weirder things about me, I guess. Maybe not the weirdest, but I love maps. I just love maps. I have loved maps my whole life. Life. When I was a little kid, uh, does anybody else remember those really big Rand McNally, at, the Rand McNally Atlas? You know what I mean? It's like five feet by five feet, and your dad would take it on vacation and hold the five foot wide map looking at it while he's also holding the steering wheel. And we're all terrified that our lot, this might be the last vacation that we ever go on, right? But, but now, thankfully, uh, we have digital maps right on our phones, right? And they're so much better than the printed ones that we used to have to use. And by far, the biggest game changer with this new new technology is the ability to zoom out and zoom in literally anywhere in the world, right? I mean, it's, it's really fascinating if you think about it, right? You can zoom out and see the landscape around any nation, any state, any city, And you can see how all the different neighborhoods and boroughs are connected by roads and tied together. But you can also zoom in, right? You can zoom in and you can see specific streets and businesses and restaurants and even your own house, which is a little creepy, right? But not as creepy as if you're on Zillow and you're looking at your neighbor's house and be like, how much did they pay for that, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, don't act like you don't do it too, right? Well... (laughs) Well, today, we're going to begin this sermon series by zooming out, all right? And we're going to see the big picture. We're going to see all of the landscape, so to speak, around Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the greater context of those books. But then, then today, we're going to zoom in. We're going to zoom in to see some of those important foundational details that we really need to know to even get to Leviticus, all right? 
So we're actually not even going to get to Leviticus today. We're going to spend our time zooming out, seeing the bigger picture and the context so that the rest of this series will make sense, all right? So let's zoom out first. Let's talk about the story of God, the story of God. See, here's the number one thing that you need to know for this and to understand this sermon series that we're doing, to understand Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's this. God's intention, God's intention from the very beginning of time has been for the earth to be his dwelling place. For the earth, planet earth that you're on right now, God created earth to be his dwelling place and get this, not alone, but with us. God created the earth so that he could live with humanity on it. Look at Psalm chapter 24, verses 1 and 2 on your screens, or on the screens. The psalmist says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. So who does the earth belong to? It belongs to God. It's his, right? The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The earth is the Lord's. This is his dwelling place with us. And so in the Garden of Eden, that's the way things were. That's when things were as God intended. In the Garden of Eden, when God created the first humans, he dwelled with his people. He lived with them in the garden on this planet. God created humans in his image, which means we have the capacity to reflect his own character and goodness. So he made us in his image. He lived with us. He put humans on this earth to fill the earth with his image. God would live with them and God would be their king. It was a beautiful design. It was a wonderful stage that God had set. But the first humans in that garden did not want what God wanted. They didn't want to answer to him as their authority. No, they wanted to be their own authority. He gave them everything they could ever want to succeed, to thrive, to build civilizations that honor God. That's not what they wanted. They were not content with his goodness and his design from the very beginning. No, They wanted to be their own authority and call the shots themselves, so they rebelled. They rebelled against God. And that threw off everything. This act of rebellion, the Bible calls sin. So sin is this rebellious attitude, action, nature that we have against God. And the punishment, the punishment for that rebellion was that humans would be banished from the garden. So in other words... God's presence was in the garden and Adam and Eve had to leave. They could no longer stand in his presence. They could no longer live alongside God. Why? Because he is perfect and holy without sin and they now were corrupted. God is not a God of corruption. God is a perfect and infinitely holy and good God. He could not let these corrupted creatures in his presence. So, this brought a curse on the entire human race. You and me included. People can no longer dwell with God. 
sinful, corrupted people such as myself, such as you, we can no longer live in his perfect paradise, his perfect presence. But that wasn't the end of the story. God is kind. God is merciful. God is slow to anger. He would not leave us banished from his holy presence without a possibility of reconciliation. His desire still after the garden, after Adam and Eve could no longer live with him, after we as a human, as a human race could, were separated from him, he still, he still desired to dwell with us. But here's the thing. In order for us to be able to dwell with God forever, to live in his presence, we must be clean. We must be clean. We must be holy as he is holy. Continuing in Psalm 24, look at this, verse 3. So David asks, who, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? So he's already established the earth is the Lord's. Everything is in that belongs to him is on this earth, right? Everything on this earth belongs to him. And so verse three then, okay, so who can live in his presence? In other words, who can approach this holy God? Who can be in his presence and dwell with him? The answer is verse four and five. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. In other words, who, who can dwell with God? Who can live in his presence forever? Only those who are clean. Only those who are pure may enter his presence, may dwell with him. So God enacted a rescue mission to accomplish exactly that, to make humanity clean again, to make people clean so that they can dwell with him again. And at the center of this great rescue mission that God himself initiated to make humanity right with God, at the center of this is Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh. He is fully God, fully human. And through his life, through Christ's perfect life, his atoning death and his powerful resurrection, through him and only him are we invited to dwell with God forever. So we look forward. We look forward as those who have repented, turned away from our sin, our desire to be our own authority, right? Just as Adam and Eve did, so have we. Those who turn away from this desire to call the shots themselves, to not submit to a holy authoritative God over them, those who turn away from that and turn to him and fall on our knees in humility and say, Jesus, I need you. I cannot do this. I'm sorry for trying to do this. I just want you to stand in my place, to be everything I could never be, to be my Lord, to be my Savior. For those who put their faith in Christ and Christ alone, 
We look forward. We look to a future where one day, get this, Jesus will return and the purpose of the earth will be renewed completely. God will dwell with his people again on this planet earth forever just as it was always intended to be. So you see on the screen this illustration. From beginning to end, from beginning to end, this is the story of God. In the first book of the Bible, at the beginning of Genesis, God dwells with his people. And at the end of the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, we see God once again will dwell with his people. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 2 and 3, at the end of the Bible, the Apostle John saw this vision that the Lord allowed him to see, a glimpse of the future. And here is what he saw. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's it. This is the greater story, the greater context in which we find Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But not just that. This is the context in which you, you sitting right here today, this is the context in which you will find the purpose and the meaning of your life. This is the story. The books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy have more to say about your past and your present and your future than you could probably ever imagine. So my hope and prayer for you as we get into the details, as we zoom in next week in the book of Leviticus, is that God would use this study over the next few months to just deepen your understanding of his truth, of his story, and how much he really does love you. How much he wants to dwell with you forever. And what that means for the way we live our lives today, the way we see our lives, the perspective we have. All right, let's pray. Just kidding, you're not getting off the hook that easy. <laughs> all right, so that's what it looks like when we zoom out, all right? Now, hey, let's zoom in. Let's zoom in a little bit here into this timeline and let's see the story of Israel, all right? So we've talked about the greater story of God. Let's zoom in and see the story of Israel. So in order for humanity to have a chance, to even have this chance to dwell with God once again, as we just read in the book of Revelation at the end, right? God decided to begin this process of reconciliation with a certain family, 
So the end goal, you just saw it on the screen, the end goal is for us to dwell with him again. But a lot of stuff has to happen between Genesis and Revelation for that to be made complete, for that to be fully realized. So God started this mission, this plan of reconciliation with humanity. He starts it with one man named Abraham. This plan of redemption. Here's what he said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And in and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promised Abraham that he would turn his family into a whole nation of people. And the purpose of this nation would be to belong uniquely and exclusively to God. They would be his people, but also through that, they would be a witness to the rest of the world. They would have a missionary role to play in the world, on the earth. They would be a beacon of light in the midst of an otherwise dark and sinful, chaotic world. That was the purpose in God choosing Abraham and turning his family into a nation was to show the rest of the world what the one true God is really like how great he is, how perfect he is, and how he desires to dwell with humanity. So here's what happened to that family. That family did grow, just like God said it would, into the nation of Israel. But this people had very significant challenges. They become slaves in Egypt for 400 years. But what did God do? God freed them. And he led them out of Egypt. So if you remember last fall, our sermon series was through the book of Exodus. So essentially this fall, we're picking up where we left off last year, right? So you possibly have, get this, this is is wild, okay? How many people are we talking about? It's not like the old Charlton Heston movie, you know, where there's like, oh, there's a few dozen people following him through the desert. No, you're talking 2.5 to 3 million people. That is wild, okay? Possibly up to 2.5 to 3 million people, Israelites, that God led out of Egypt. I mean, can you even imagine that? That is more than the population of Jacksonville. So just imagine if one day everybody in Jacksonville and the surrounding counties all got together and said, all right, let's go. And so we just pick up our tents and our stuff, and we just start hiking down I-10 together. I mean, can you imagine, right, the chaos, right? Not the, I mean, you're talking about a traffic jam. That's going to be insane. And so, and this was before cell phones, right? This wasn't like, hey, where y'all at? You know, like there's, there's no location finder. I mean, this was, this was a huge operation, but that's how powerful God was, He was leading his people. He was showing them the path. So this nation of people, they come out of Egypt through the Red Sea and they get to a place called Sinai. 
Mount Sinai on the Sinai Peninsula. And they get there, most scholars, or some scholars think, and we're going to go with this date, about 1446 B.C. All right, about 1446 B.C. So they get to the Sinai Peninsula, they're at the mountain, and God meets with their leader, Moses. And he gives him instructions on how to be the people of God. He gives him instructions on how to love God, how to love each other. Why is God giving him all these commands, all these instructions? He's giving them so that they can love God, worship God, and faithfully represent God to the rest of the world as this greater story of redemption unfolds. Now, ever since the banishment of humanity from the Garden of Eden, God has only appeared to specific people and specific times in very special ways. So after Adam and Eve could not live in God's presence, right, God only appears to certain people like Abraham and speaks directly to him. He only appears to Moses, right, and speaks directly to him. So think of the burning bush, right? That's where God or Moses first encountered God's presence, right? And then God speaks to Moses on the mountain, on Mount Sinai. So only in these special ways, only to these special people. But everything... Everything's about to change. God is going to come down the mountain. He's going to come down the mountain and get this. He is going to dwell among the Israelites. And the two and a half million people, so they're living in tents, literally, in the desert. They're living in tents in the desert. And God tells Moses, he is going to come down the mountain and live in the middle of their camp. Look at Exodus chapter 25, verse eight and nine. God tells Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, that was what they called this tent, God's dwelling place, his tent, the tabernacle. He said, and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Now, that's the story of Israel. Now, let's zoom in even more. Let's zoom in more and let's talk about this tent where God would live, the tabernacle, all right? So we're zooming in even further. This is like, you know, when you're on Google Maps and you're like, zooming in, do they have a pool in their backyard, right? (laughs) So we're zooming all the way in. This is a real close view, street level view. See, you can't understand these books of the Bible if you don't understand the tabernacle. If you don't understand this tent, God's dwelling place, this holy tent, if you don't understand the tabernacle and how it is the spiritual center, the central focal point, spiritually and literally of the Israelites, if you don't get this, you're not going to understand the rest of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So God is coming to live among his people in a tent in the middle of all their tents, right? So this is the tabernacle. Right? This is a, an illustration of what the tabernacle actually looked like. It's, we have very specific details in the scriptures about what it looked like. So God himself, this, this tabernacle, like, but like God himself, his dwelling place, this tent, is different. Right, It's different than all the other tents. 
So his tent is in the middle of their tents, but it's not the same. It is holy. It is set apart. It's the central focal point, the center of the camp. It's not just for anybody to walk in and say hello. In fact, only a priest could even enter into the tabernacle. And only if they had gone through the cleansing according to the laws God gave Moses. Through this tent, this tabernacle, where God's presence would dwell in a special way, God is showing his people the importance of his holiness. Him being different than them. And how impossible it is to live in his presence unless unless you are holy, unless you are clean as well. Theologian Graham Goldsworthy says three things about the tabernacle that I want to share with you. Number one, he says, God desires to, to dwell among his people. That's number, the first thing that the tabernacle shows us. He didn't give up, right? He didn't give up on the human race. In fact, look at this in Exodus 29, verse 45. God said, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. God wanted to live with his people. He desired to dwell with his people, even though his people essentially spat in his face and rebelled against him. No, he wanted to live with them in his great love, compassion, and mercy for his people. The second thing he says, it shows us, the tabernacle shows us that sin separates people from God. So he wants to live with us, yet we're corrupted, we're sinful. So the tabernacle itself had two sections. You can kind of see it here on the screen. I know it's a little small, but you had the holy place, which was the first room. So essentially it has two rooms, right? So you you walk in and the first room is called the holy place where only the priests could enter. But then there was a great veil or a great curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the second room. And behind that curtain is where God's presence would uniquely dwell. And only one priest could enter into that room once a year. And then around the outside of the actual tabernacle was a courtyard. So altogether, it would have looked kind of like this. So you see that fence, right, around the tabernacle. So it's this huge rectangular structure, all right? The structure of the tabernacle itself shows, as you see with the fence, right, that there is a barrier between God and man. The curtain inside the tent signifies the barrier between God's presence and us, and the fence around the whole thing signifies God's presence, but we cannot enter. There is a barrier between God and man, but the third thing, Goldsworthy says that the tabernacle shows us is that God provides a way of reconciliation. God provides a way of approaching him. The courtyard was a place where sacrifices for sin would be made. You see, sin must be atoned for. What that means is that sin must be paid for. God doesn't just sweep sin under some heavenly rug, right? He doesn't just sweep it under the rug and just kind of forget that it's there. No, sin must be paid for because he is a just God. He loves justice. 
He loves mercy, but he loves justice. He loves righteousness. And so all evil things must be punished or else he's not a perfect holy God. So God had to make a way for our sin to be paid for. And so through the priests and through the sacrifices, God was making a way to show the people of Israel how their sins can be forgiven only by the spilling of blood. A life must be taken, but it wasn't going to be their life. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about this over the next few weeks. But for now, here's what you need to know. There had to be this priest, though. There had to be this mediator between man and God. And there had to be a blood sacrifice to take the place of the people to pay for their sins, to be their substitute. You see, this whole process in and around the tabernacle was, what was all this for? Right? Why go through all this? The whole process is because sinful humanity could not approach God without their sins being paid for. But now, now through this system, they could be cleansed and they could dwell in the midst of a holy God. So when we think about this story, you know, every good story has a hero. And the thing about this story is it's true. This is a true story, and yes, it has a hero too. You see, the tabernacle was a beautiful tent with an amazing system of sacrifice through these priests to pay for the people's sins. But ultimately, ultimately, it was incomplete. Day after day, year after year, the people would have to make sacrifices for their sins. And at the end of the day, there was still a barrier between the people and God's special presence behind that curtain. Even though they kept making these sacrifices, killing these animals day after day after day after day, there was still the curtain. There was still the barrier. But God wasn't finished with his story. This was one step. This was one step in his pursuit of us. This was one step in his pursuit to establish his dwelling with us. Because about 1,400 years after this, 1,400 years after the tabernacle, God would come to dwell with his people in a completely new and unprecedented way. In John chapter 1, verse 14 John tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, the capital W word there is referring to Jesus Christ. And the word dwelt, get this. The word dwelt there in the Greek, in the original Greek, literally means tabernacled. That's the verb form of the word, tabernacled. So in other words, Jesus, John says, came to earth, God in the flesh, to tabernacle among us. Jesus came so we could have access to God. You see, the actual tabernacle in the wilderness was just a shadow of what was to come. Jesus is the true and greater tabernacle. And he is the true and greater sacrifice. 
once and for all. Look at this, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 says, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He no longer had to stand like the priests do and keep killing the animals. No, Jesus himself was the sacrifice. And so he hangs on the cross and says, it is finished and sits down. So what does this mean? What does this mean for us today? Does this have any relevance to our lives today? Absolutely. There are no more barriers between us and God because of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice once for all. Hebrews 10 continues and says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the what? Through the curtain. You see, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, when he took his final breath, what happened? The earth shook and the curtain and the temple in Jerusalem tore in half from top to bottom, signifying that God was the one doing the tearing and the tearing was the final step in allowing humanity to approach a holy God. We have direct access now. We don't need a priest. We don't need a confessional booth. We go straight to Jesus Christ, who is our perfect priest, our perfect sacrifice, the greater, the true tabernacle. It's him and him alone. So the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. Don't you love it? If you know Jesus Christ today, that your heart has been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So God's presence, God's presence allows us access Jesus through Jesus and it cleanses us, it purifies us. It changes everything about us. We no longer have to live for the glory of this world or the glory of ourselves. We no longer have to try to create our own authoritative bubble on this earth where we just call the shots and do things the way we think they need to be done without consideration of others. No, we live for our King, Jesus, who gave his life for us, who shows us the way of true love, who shows us the way of true sacrifice. That's freedom. That's freedom. Slavery is living to yourself. Slavery, spiritual slavery, is being a slave to your own desires that you can't escape. No, freedom is falling at our knees and saying, Jesus, I just want you. Would you purify me? Would you cleanse me? So we see here in the scriptures that God's presence has progressively gotten more amazing and more personal throughout the Bible, leading to Jesus. But guess what? You're not going to believe this. It got even more personal. Because if you belong to Christ, he lives in you now. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul said, Do you not know that you, you, Christian, are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? How about that? It's not just that Jesus came to earth. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to live in, in us, in his people. And that's true individually. And guess what? That means it's also true corporately, together as a church, as the family 
of God, the bride of Christ. In Ephesians 2, Paul said, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So how does God manifest his presence on earth today? Do we need a special tent? Do we need a special cathedral? Do we need a special place? No, it's you. Ha, it's you. It's us. It's through us. How amazing is that? So do you see it? The story of God? Look at this. The story of God is your story. That's the great encouragement of the day. The story of God is your story. So next week, we're going to dive right into Leviticus and we're going to see how all of that works together and how it all unfolds. And I'm excited. But here's the one thing that I want you to know today. I want you to be encouraged that God is going to finish the work. He is going to finish this plan. He is going to finish the work of renewing this world where he will put all things right and everything sad will become untrue. All suffering and tears and terribleness in this world will be done. And Jesus Christ will reign forever on this earth with his people. And if you belong to Jesus, here's what you need to know. Leaving this room today, he will finish the work he began in you. You, you, Christian, will be renewed completely. And you're in that process already. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you're already in the process. You're on this timeline. But guess what? We're already being taken care of, but we're not yet quite to the finish line. Jesus is working in you now, and he will continue, and he will finish. No matter where you are, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, look at this. Paul says, and I am sure... I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Look at the story of God. Look at the story of God and be amazed at the great lengths he went to to rescue you, to save you, to love you. Look at his faithfulness. Look at his faithfulness to you, his pursuit of you, his patience, and all of your shortcomings, his patience with you. Look at your future home. You have a secure future. You have a dwelling place with God forever. Right here on this earth, you will live forever with Jesus. You will live with his people right here. So maybe you're here today and you don't, like your story so far. The story that you've tried to write, the story that you're living, maybe you just would change the chapters, you'd change the titles, you would change the content of your life story if you could right now. But there is no eraser. There is no whiteout. There is no going back. Maybe you had a troubled childhood. Maybe you've gone through some really dark seasons. Maybe you're in a dark season right now. But in the end, child of God, be encouraged today that in the end, your story will be made complete. And God is working all things together for good for those who love him. And it is all going to be orchestrated in a way that makes perfect sense one day when you dwell with him in a perfect paradise. And you know, you know then that the story that he wrote for you is far better than any story you could ever write for yourself. In the end, your story will be complete. It will be the story of God. And you will dwell with him forever.
So live today. You see, you see it? <laughs> live today then in light of that story. Maybe some of us just need to put the pen down. We need to stop trying to write our own story and force it to happen in a way that doesn't glorify God, that neglects others, that doesn't love others as ourselves. No, maybe we just need to hand the pen over to God and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Would you write my story? I want this great story of yours to be true for me forever and always. Jesus, would you finish the work you've began in me? And please forgive me for where I have tried to steal the pen back from you. Today, live in light of that fact. Love God, love people today as one who doesn't need the temporary things of this world to make you happy. No, the story of God is your story. You have everything you need in Christ Jesus our Lord to make you complete. He is truly Emmanuel, God with us.